Hey, listeners. want to thank you for tuning into the Door County Pulse podcast. As you know, I am a, a huge parking geek. I read a lot about it. I talk a lot about it on this podcast. I've covered it a lot over the 20 years or so that I've been uh, covering town meetings and board meetings throughout Door County. It comes up all the time. I spend a lot of time looking at the Door County GIS map where you get the satellite photos of our downtowns, and it just makes me cringe when I see how much of that our downtown space and our, our core areas are actually just parking lots, far more than buildings. So today I got an opportunity. I just finished up the book, Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World, by a guy named Henry Grabar. And it's just a fascinating book. And I was able to track him down and get him to spend about 45 minutes with us on the podcast. And I really encourage you to listen to it. If you are a municipal board member or plan commission member or parks committee member, if you're just interested in this stuff, if you just want your downtown to be better and if are at all interested in how we design our roads and streets and encourage and incentivize businesses, I do think this discussion is valuable. So I encourage you to give a listen. I hope you find it as insightful as I did. There's obviously a lot in this book that we are unable to get to in this conversation, but we do touch on many points and uh, Henry did, does a great job of making it tangible on a small town level as most of his book is about big cities and how they approach parking. So I hope you like it. If you do, I hope you share it. And if you have concerns with your own municipality and some of the parking discussions and development discussions and, and zoning rules that you have and housing, particularly housing, uh, I hope you share it with some people and encourage them to give it a listen and maybe think a little bit different. If we can move the needle just a little bit, we can have better towns and better communities. So with that, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Henry Grabar, the author of Paved Paradise. The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen, Jr., and today I'm going to be joined by Henry Grabar, columnist for Slate, who writes about housing, transportation, and urban policy. And he's the author of a book called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World, which that would tell you that he's probably just as annoying at uh, dinner parties as I am as a conversationalist. Um, Henry, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. And are you as annoying? Do people like dread the, when parking comes up or do they look to you and like want to bring this up with you? Yeah, I think there's a, when I was writing the book, I got two types of reactions from people. Some people just smile and nod and change the subject, but you would be surprised at how many people when the conversation turns to parking get very animated. It seems like a topic on which a lot of people have formed a body of uh, uh, strong opinions and, and even expertise. <laughs> and I'm guessing that a lot of that animation is people who are saying, how could you possibly reduce parking? Some of it, some of it is indeed that. A lot of it is just, this could be better. I, you know, I know where to find a parking spot. I know what the problem is here. <laughs> I've, you know, done my research, et cetera. Yeah, right. <laughs> so if you talk about this in the book, is that everybody wants parking in the perfect location at the perfect time that they want it, right in front of where they want to go. And that that is maybe the thing that leads to the greatest confusion about this, because then we have this ridiculous standard for what we want parking to be. Mm. Yeah, and not to mention at, at the perfect price, which is nothing, <laughs> right? And I think there are kind of uh, unshakable rules of geometry and construction economics 
and density that basically dictate that any place where parking is convenient, available, and free is not going to be the kind of place that you really actually want to go to, right? I mean, I think so this is the kind of the great paradox of parking is everybody obviously loves to find a great parking space without looking for it at all. But it's precisely the places where parking is challenging that I think are, are the most attractive to us. And, and that's not a coincidence. I, th- I think a lot of us don't think of parking the way we think of almost anything else, especially when it comes to real estate. And you mentioned this in Manhattan, where real estate is incredibly expensive, but the parking is free. And all those parking spots add up to a lot of really expensive real estate in Manhattan. In our small towns in, in Door County, the same thing. Our downtowns are our most uh, desirable places. That's where we have our highest commercial value. It's where our waterfronts are. And yet, when you think about parking, and I hadn't really thought of it this way until you wrote about it, even though I've been kind of a, a parking geek for quite a while and was lucky enough to get uh, Donald Shoup on this podcast last summer, kind of the, the godfather of parking geeks. And yet I hadn't really thought of it in terms of that price and how we just expect this thing to be free. Why is it that we develop that mindset when, when we basically have found ways to like make money off of everything else? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think it, it really dates back to this kind of a sort of historical anomaly in American history, which was the sudden wave of suburbanization after the Second World War. And as this happened, as so many people began to leave cities and towns and, and move out further away to places, you know, whose distance from employment centers and amenities and schools and all that would have been unthinkable before every family could afford to have two plus cars. Once that starts to happen, cities start to panic about their own parking supply. And they look at what's happening in the suburbs with the provision of uh, ample parking day or night, to quote the South Park song. And they look at that and they say, we, we, need, to, we need to match this, right? I mean, this is something that suburban commercial, like, a, you know, mall operators brag about this stuff in their, in their advertisements, right? Yeah. There's all this free parking. And so, so cities decide they need to compete with that. And in many cases... Parking meters had actually been really well established in cities in the 1930s, 40s, early 50s. Parking meters are everywhere, and and, um, and small towns and cities sort of abandoned that approach because they are so fearful of this competition from the suburbs with their free parking. And I think that was just a misguided strategy because cities and towns were never going to be able to match the suburbs for ease of parking, right? And, mm-hmm. and they were not competing on parking, right? They weren't competing to offer the best parking. They were competing to offer the most attractive place to go, right? And that is not necessarily synonymous and, in fact, might be opposed to having a lot of free and easy parking. Yeah, you gave, you provide a lot of examples in the book of how cities took these beautiful downtowns and just demolished buildings to put in parking lots. And you think of like a building that's maybe four stories or eight stories or 12 stories tall and all the things that might exist in that building and the streetscape that provides and just putting a big paved quarter of a city block or a whole city block, basically, in some of these places, and just making a parking lot and what that does to your downtowns. One of my favorite things that shows up in my Twitter feed would be like sometimes when people show pictures of then and now, and they'll show this beautiful downtown image from like the 50s or 60s or 70s, and then they show what it is today. And oftentimes, these beautiful downtowns have been completely cleared for an interstate or a strode of some sort, which is just, you know, the the really wide interior city street. And, and you just yeah. think of like, you look at what was there and like, gosh, I want to be in that old picture. I don't want to be in the middle of this nine lanes of a road. Right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the other things that you have to remember is if you put yourself in the shoes of a town planner in the 1950s 
it would have been hard to imagine the type of kind of asphalt moonscape that we now know from many of our small cities. It would have been hard to imagine such a thing occurring, right? I mean, the, the idea that there were too many automobiles and there wasn't enough space to park them was so ingrained in the way they thought about the urban environment. I think they took for granted that there was a kind of bustle and a vitality and a density to those main streets and those districts, et cetera. And uh, what they began to see is even as they provided more and more parking, um, it did not staunch the flow of people and residents to the suburbs. In fact, I think, you know, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that as they provided more parking, they wound up actually eliminating the very advantage that they had over their suburban competitors, hmm. which was the density, the attractability, the sort of walkability, the, all those things that make, you know, the country's best small towns and downtowns what they are, actually creating parking abundance began to chip away at that charm. I, I have covered so many hundreds of local board meetings and municipal meetings and input sessions and community listening sessions and engineer presentations where my neighbors, my friends will say like, oh, we want to be more like that town. And we want to, we want a downtown that's like this. And whatever they're pointing out is usually a dense area without setbacks, without big parking lots in the middle. And usually the places they're talking about are the places in our area that have the least parking available. Those are the places they want to be. That's what they want their downtowns to be and thrive. And yet when they have the discussion, it always comes back to like, yeah, but we'll have to do a lot of parking. And they don't connect often that like, what they want to be is not a parking lot. The places that they want to be are not parking lots. And your book is called Pave Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. That sounds like hyperbole. It sounds over the top to, to explain the world through parking. But your book is not just about parking. You illustrate how these parking minimums changed our cities, and, and not always because of the minimums, just because of like what you spoke to about planning and developers and that fear of losing people to the suburbs, but how they changed our cities, our towns, our architecture, our economy, even organized crime. Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the reasons that I wrote this book even was I was a journalist and would write these stories about various aspects of the environment, right? Like the political urban environment. I would write about housing, I would write about transportation, I would write about municipal finance, and parking came out of those subjects. Like, I didn't go looking for parking. Parking <laughs> came to me <laughs> as, I, as I reported on each one of these stories. And and every time it would be like, well, why did this affordable housing project end up having only 15 units instead of 50, right? And the answer would be, well, turns out they had to use half the lot to build parking and blah, blah, blah. And each unit required this many parking spaces. And the neighbor said this, and that delayed the timeline by two years. And then the you know tax credits they had acquired expired, and they had to go look for new financing. And then construction costs rose and so on. And so you begin to see the way that parking is banal, to be sure. But we all, we all know that the automobile has had a massive impact on American society. I don't think that surprises anybody, that, that fact in and of itself. And then if you think about it for, for another couple seconds, you, you realize that the automobile spends most of its lifetime not moving, right? right? It spends most of its lifetime stored. So as much as we focus on the roads and the cars themselves, the actual spatial impact of the automobile on our society is to be found mostly in the provision of parking spaces. And so I don't think it's, in that sense, perhaps it's not such a surprise that it, it plays such an important role in all these different aspects of our lives. What, is, what does it cost to provide parking and how does it impact? You talk about like an affordable housing project and well, it didn't happen because of all these things, but like, you know, building a garage or building a driveway, it adds so much cost to these projects, right? 
Yeah, I mean, in big cities like, you know, Milwaukee or Chicago, the cost of building a structured parking garage is probably in the tens of thousands of dollars per space. <laughs> so if you want to build, say, a uh, 400 space garage, you could be looking at an $8 million project, right? And I think one of the things that happens, and by the way, those costs might go up significantly. I mean, there's a garage in Connecticut I was just reading about where the spaces cost over $100,000 per space to build. So now you could say, well, that's that's a separate problem, maybe. But the fact is, construction costs are rising, uh, housing costs are through the roof. And by deciding that we need all this parking, we've built that cost into the cost of housing. And, and it can be quite substantial. And, and by the way, the, the dollar cost of actually building the parking is not the whole ballgame here. Because the other thing that happens is, as you require parking, you actually shift the types of projects that become viable, right? I mean, mm. most of our traditional small town urbanism is made up of, you know, rows of little shops or businesses with offices or sometimes residences above them, right? Mm-hmm. And and that, that has sort of typically defined the American Main Street. Now, if every square foot in that strip is required to have one square foot of parking for every square foot of interior space, which is a, a common stipulation in the parking codes that are uh, included in most zoning ordinances, well, all of a sudden then you're looking at basically cutting the density of that fabric in half in order to create sufficient parking. And we could argue all day about whether that's worth it or not, but I think we just need to be clear about the consequences of the decisions we've made. We decided that every piece of real estate needs to have an equivalent piece of real estate dedicated to parking cars. And the result is we've lost a lot of those places that we love so much and we've made it impossible to build new ones. The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org careers. You write about how some of these um, downtowns, what happens over time is for someone to do the development they want in your downtown core, which, which is this infill that basically any smart planner is desiring, smart city, but then to provide that new space downtown, they have to tear down a historic structure or something next door just for parking and how much that takes away. But it also takes away from property tax. You know, when you build a parking lot, there's not a lot of property tax to be added to the city rolls because of that. But if that's a structure, you could be getting five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars a year out of that building that that parking lot will never provide, and that compounds on itself every single year. Sometimes people perceive that this is an urban issue. They perceive that parking could only be considered a subject of study, or we could debate how much parking is required in an area where people are making a lot of trips on a bike, on foot, or by transit. But I actually think many small towns have been, to some extent, the greatest victims of this policy, precisely for the reason you're talking about, right? They have a a relatively limited area of historic urban fabric. And if you destroy half of that to create space to park cars, you can't really get it back. And then you then you have the missing tooth issue in your downtowns where then people go like, well, why aren't more people walking? Why don't we have more street traffic? It's like, well, you took away the things that that pull them through your town. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a cycle. You looked at some California where they've had you know, the housing shortage, and this is something that comes up in Door County 
all the time. I'm talking to you, you're in, you're on the East Coast. You write a lot about cities. In our small town, we have this massive housing shortage that is similar to what's happening in every major tourism destination around the country. The short-term rental market has exasperated that. And then people start looking at those solutions. One of those solutions coming up in communities all across the country are accessory dwelling units or granny flats. And, well, let's add those to the marketplace. There are some towns in, in this community that still don't allow that in their downtown core, which is a problem altogether. But some of the other ones that do have said, well, nobody's taking advantage of it. And I haven't looked into this locally yet, but you write about how in California they allowed accessory dwelling units, but they didn't take off. But then parking played a role in finally getting some momentum there. Maybe explain that, what happened in California. Sure. Well, most zoning codes require that every new dwelling unit, whether it's a house or an apartment or whatever, come with a certain number of parking spaces. And for years in California, they wanted to permit these accessory dwelling units, in part because people were already living in them, right? Like (laughs) there was a lot of informal urbanism happening where either in garages, like in happy days, or just in, you know, little self-built structures in the backyard, people were solving the housing shortage really parcel by parcel on their own by thinking, you know, this makes sense both for someone who needs a a place and also to, you know, to to raise a little more money to, to help pay the mortgage or something like that, right? But of course, one of the reasons they couldn't be legalized was that zoning requires this parking space with every new unit. And in a lot of places, there's there's simply no room to provide another parking space or another two parking spaces if you're having someone live in the garage, right? Because you're taking away a parking space then, and so you need to provide new parking that's associated both with the primary dwelling but also with the accessory dwelling. And it turns out that parking requirement acts as a kind of poison pill that makes it actually really hard to legalize and develop these small accessory properties. Uh, And that can be a real hindrance to creating housing diversity. I mean, I think one of the things that characterizes a lot of our environment right now, our urban environment, is there's not a lot of diversity in the housing stock. And what that means is if you're not a nuclear family with three kids, the housing stock really isn't designed for you. And we see this happening both for young adults who are living with their parents for longer and longer and in greater and greater numbers, but also for older people who, when they decide that it's time to downsize, have a lot of trouble finding appropriate housing in the mm-hmm. neighborhoods that they've been living in for decades. And that's that's tragic, right? I mean, yeah. the decision that you have to make to either pick out a reverse mortgage and stay in your gigantic home um, just to stay in your neighborhood or uh, move miles and miles away, that's not fair, right? And so I think the accessory dwelling units and thinking a little bit more flexibly about zoning and, of course, parking is an important part of creating neighborhoods that offer housing options to people at all stages of life. And and that's something that I don't even think is, is particularly politically controversial. Right. I mean, uh, the cool thing about when you really dive into parking, and I know that like the entry level is where people are at, the status quo of, well, yeah, we have to have parking. I mean, a few years ago, I was very much in that camp of like, well, you can't really get rid of parking altogether. You know, I was, I would rather have a bike lane than a row of parking spaces along the side of the street. I was always that guy, but I also couldn't wrap my head around the idea of a city reducing, getting rid of parking minimums in part because parking becomes a cudgel to protect certain things about a community. Like there have been in our area, we don't have chain restaurants and we don't have a lot of chain stores, which allows 
the tax dollars, the income, the revenue, it all stays here for the most part instead of like mm-hmm. getting seeped out. Parking minimums are one of the ways that towns have been able to ward that off when a Dollar General or a, a chain restaurant wants to come in. Like they won't build without massive parking lots. And then you have some green space requirements and you have like water runoff things, but the parking lot minimum has allowed them to, to save off some of those developments. And it's partially because we don't have some of the tools from a, our state statutes eliminate some of the control of small communities. So then the parking becomes the only tool they have. And so I definitely see it a little bit from that side. But when you talk about with the housing in a downtown area, you know, it's, it becomes hard to put an ADU on a building, but it also becomes hard in a small downtown core to build at a density that can make a house affordable or an apartment affordable. And if you want to build 12 units downtown, which should ideally reduce the amount of car trips that that those people would ever have to take anyway and make it more walkable, but you still have to provide that parking. And then so people don't build anything except the highest end thing. And that's hurting cities. It's hurting small towns like, like the ones we live in here in Door County. I'm curious, have you looked some of these towns across the country, some cities have abolished parking minimums. And you talk about California where you now don't have that parking requirement for those accessory dwelling units. So are these communities getting ruined? Are they getting stifled by people searching for parking? What what has happened? What's the result been? It's a great question. This has been kind of the, the revelation of the past decade in planning for parking is the, the thought that after years and years, decades, almost a century of requiring all this parking with every land use, what if we stopped requiring it? And the results so far have been encouraging in one sense, but they've also revealed that for many, many years, we have forced builders to provide more parking than the market actually wants. And as a result, we've built ourselves a massive surplus of parking at great expense and uh, at great cost to both the capital E environment and also the built environment as a, as a sort of quality architectural place. So the results of these reforms have been, well, obviously, most builders still build parking because they know that their clients and tenants and future buyers are going to want parking spaces, but they build the amount of parking that they think is required. And that's often dependent on context. And this is a really crucial thing that I think zoning for parking overlooked, right? The amount of parking that a building needs is not a fixed idea, right? And this has been another one of the kind of sea changes in the way people think about this. Parking is actually relatively elastic. Demand for parking is relatively elastic. Like even in a small town, the way that people decide to come downtown, they may continue to drive, but it's not a given that you need to have two rows of free parking spaces on either side of Main Street for them to park in, right? I think one of the things we realize is that, you know, there are a lot of trips that might be taken differently. They might be taken by carpool. Those people might drive somewhere, but they might park a little further away. I mean, all of these things still happen in a world where there's slightly less parking. And so one of the you know positive developments that have taken place as these zoning requirements have fallen away is a return to a lot of traditional urban construction, right? Like hmm. buildings with more smaller units that face the street, fewer parking spaces. And of course, the provision of parking spaces is an effect on whether people choose to drive or not. So if you build buildings with fewer parking spaces, you actually wind up with less traffic than if you had built <laughs> that building with more parking spaces. Um, I think that's, that's also an important thing to keep in mind here. I've seen a bunch of small towns that have, you know, realized that by charging for their parking, 
they can actually say, you know, say to a big family, hey, you guys should come downtown in one car rather than three, right? right? Maybe the teenagers don't need to drive alone to dinner tonight. And that's the kind of like nudge that you can give with, with a little parking price. I'm glad you brought that up because you mentioned in your book, the examples that you're talking about is not like, well, parking spots should be $25 per hour or businesses should subs- should have to pay 20 grand per space in front of their store. You're not saying stuff like that. You're talking about like, well, if you charge $2, <laughs> you're going to make people think about it a little bit. And and yes, you, you don't even talk about it as much about like, I don't even know if your book at all, if, as I recall it, talks about it in terms of like money for the city or community. You don't talk about the return on those parking meters. You're just talking about changing habits for the most part with small incremental decisions. That's right. I think one of the things that gets overlooked when we talk about charging for parking is that the original purpose of the parking meter was not to raise money. The purpose of the parking meter was to manage these congested assets, right? Which were the curbs of downtown streets. And unless you make people pay for it, you really have no easy way of making sure that there's some kind of order happening on those streets. So, you know, with the parking meter, in fact, let me be more specific. The actual problem that occurs in city after city and town after town where there's free parking is that, that those primo downtown parking spaces are used up by employees of downtown businesses mm-hmm. and they drive to work first thing in the morning and they park there. And then when the clients show up later in the day to have lunch or buy something, all those parking spots are taken. And so there's nowhere for them to park and they go away thinking that this is a town that suffers from a bona fide parking shortage and they'd rather go to the mall. And so this is where I think small business owners get it wrong when they agitate against paid parking it's not the paid parking that turns potential customers away. It's the lack of parking. And in fact, you can solve that lack of parking rather than by demolishing half of downtown to spend $20 million on a garage. You can solve that lack of parking just by pricing it. Because often there isn't actually a lack in total number terms if you count all the parking in the downtown area. It's just that there's a concentrated district where everybody wants to park because it's free and it's in front of the businesses. So for me, pricing is not about raising money, although it does have the benefit of being redirected into local improvements that further improve the you know, attractiveness of the area. But it's really about organization, right? It's about pushing people who are parking for longer amounts of time to park a few blocks away. And sure, that's a longer walk to their destination. But that time, the cost of that long walk is amortized over the 10 hours during which they're going to be parking. Whereas for somebody who's running a quick errand, they really need that parking space right in front of the business. I mean, I, I just am thinking of several of our towns right now. I mean, there's a couple of towns that have spent 500 to a million dollars just building a surface parking lot, you know, not even like a structured massive parking garage mm-hmm. in key downtown areas. And in fact, I was on a committee for one town that a waterfront redevelopment committee when the, the village had very smartly invested a ton of money to open up its public waterfront. And then there was a space available that most of us on the committee thought, all right, either keep that as a park or sell that to a developer to help pay for this waterfront investment we made. And they actually ended up turning that into a parking lot. And I I look at that. A lot of people say, well, we need that. Imagine if we didn't have that. I'm like, imagine how much property tax revenue we'd have if that were not a parking lot. (laughs) And the, the worst part is it's right downtown in the key area and it's totally free. So what happens is half of that lot throughout the day is used up at least half of it, by the employees of the the restaurants and motels and stores in downtown. So it's not actually 
serving the business community, even in a, in the revenue generating way that of just spending money. And a lot of this is for employees that live within a mile of that business. So it's yeah, perfect I mean, illustration of what you're talking about. And I understand they probably think, well, we had to, it's full. So obviously it justifies its own creation. Right. But I think, Again, if you make the parking free, you don't actually have a sense of what the real demand for it is, right? I mean, if you made, uh, you know, if we made beer free, <laughs> can you even imagine how much beer people would, would, would drink, right? I mean, it, 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 subsidizing a product distorts people's appetite for it, right? And I think that you see that with parking all the time. And even aside from that, to take a to take a prominent downtown parcel and use it for something that's so unattractive, I think is is short sighted, and especially because, and this is where again I come back to the the idea of small towns versus big cities. Big cities sometimes suffer from situations where there actually is not space for everyone who wants to go there to park. Right, like a big downtown office building, often in a place like Boston or Philadelphia, like not all those employees could drive to work and park there. There's just not enough room. Small towns are a little different because they often do have enough room for everybody who wants to come downtown to park. It's just right. that you might need to park a, a, a few blocks away, right? And so I think it's about clear signaling, shifting the mindset of arriving drivers to say, you know what, like if you're coming downtown, you're looking for free parking, like, you know, turn a couple blocks this way or something like that, right? I mean, let's make use of the curb space. The reason our streets are so wide is so that they can have parking on both sides of them. So let's make use of that asset rather than take another parcel building and uh, and dedicate it to you know a big uh, piece of asphalt. Yeah, exactly what you're talking about. I'm envisioning Sister Bay, the probably busiest tourism town in our community where people talk about congestion and, and parking problems all the time. I don't agree with them, but one way to ease that as you come down our main hill, if you just put paid parking, turn left, free parking, turn right, I think you'd probably get like 75% of people would just go to the free parking just by instinct that based on like the way that people respond to just the even suggestion that they would pay for it. And especially if you change that mindset to like, well, if you want the premium parking, that's where the paid parking is that you can get people to to understand what they're choosing. the other thing that happens in tourism towns like ours is when you design everything around parking for those peak months. And to some extent you have to, like there's, you can't have a lodging establishment and not have a parking spot for each hotel room in a drive to destination, you know, that nobody's getting here by public transit. So nobody's flying in and taking an Uber to the hotel. So you have to have that parking unless, or correct me if I'm wrong on that. Maybe there's a different theory, but I think you, you have to, but what we tend to do is build all these parking lots, build these very wide streets with tons of on street parking. And for six to eight months a year, when the people who live here year round, we're just forced to look at these large empty airport runways of asphalt through our town that add, stormwater runoff and just are not very aesthetically pleasing to look at. That's one of my big gripes. Yeah. I mean, this is an extreme example of a a very common, even ubiquitous phenomenon, which is you have to build the parking for the maximum moment of, of, of use. If you're, if you're not thinking flexibly about, about this. Right. And I think that obviously by design leads to a lot of empty parking the rest of the year. And what to do about that is, a matter of some debate, but I think in peak season, you know, maybe you do need to think more flexibly about where people can park. And maybe there's an area along a road that in the winter, you don't want people parking there, but maybe in the summer you make an exception and turn it into an overflow parking area or something like that. Just so you don't have to, again, 
pave over half the downtown in order to to create that space. And I think to some extent you got, you got a good problem, right? I mean, if if you're actually suffering from uh, just an incredible amount of parking demand in the summer, it means that people really want to come to the place, right? And so that's, right. that's a much better problem to have than, than not having any. And I think it also suggests perhaps that people might be willing to pay for that parking <laughs> and they might be willing to walk from a little further away. So I think having that kind of appetite for, for a place comes with uh, a little bit of, you know, you get more control as a city in terms of how you think about it. One last thing, I know we're up against your timeline here, but there's this thing that happens too, is once you have a lot of, like we're in one of those tourism areas that has had, seen a lot of growth in tourism in the last five years, COVID exponentially, because we're a great outdoors destination. So a lot of people who hadn't even found this place for decades suddenly discovered it during COVID because we you could be outside and enjoy yourself all the time. We don't rely on water parks or some things like that. So you get this increased congestion. So everyone in town is complaining about more cars, more traffic, more tourism. And then their solution is we need to build more parking. We need wider roads. We need to make it easier. And you've talked about this, like the induced demand. You do that. If you build more parking, make it easier to drive to a place, you're just going to get more and more and more and put more pressure on those streets. And even in our state park right now, there is a debate there. They have a tower that has become immensely popular and the solution proposed right now is to build a large parking lot. And if you're worried about congestion at that, that particular place and the overuse of that place, from everything I've studied, it's like the parking lot is probably going to exacerbate that problem, not solve that problem. Whereas if I look at a place like Muir Woods out in um, California, when, when I wanted to visit that and my wife and I were looking it up, we found out you can't park there unless you reserve a spot in advance. And if you don't fit one of those 20 spots, you got to get there on foot, on bike, or from a public, like a shuttle. And that means they don't have to pave a big chunk near woods so that you can go visit the woods. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, it, it does become difficult, right? Because for many people in many parts of the country, parking is synonymous with access. And so you want to provide a certain amount of parking to make sure that these places don't become super exclusive and you don't have to pay, you know, 60 bucks or something like that to just to have the privilege of, of getting a little time outside with your kids, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think I'm sensitive to that that possibility at the same time. Obviously, you don't want to pave over half the attraction itself. You don't want a situation like Old Faithful in Yellowstone National Park where <laughs> it doesn't look like it's the photos, but the geyser is actually surrounded by like a horseshoe, a giant horseshoe of, of parking spaces. <laughs> They don't. They don't put that in the, in the photos in the in the tourism. They do guides. not put that in, in the in the brochure. But so one way to deal with that is to think about how else people might try and get around. And I think a lot of the time people say, "Well, oh, it's winter in Wisconsin, nobody's going to ride their bike, etc." But winter is not when you have this problem, right? I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of the problem comes in the most beautiful summer month, and it comes from people who are there because they want to be outside. And so I think there actually is a lot of potential to think about making these 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 roads safe for people to ride bikes on, especially with e-bikes now, mm-hmm. you're reaching a point where distances that formerly seemed like they were only for, you know, uh, Lance Armstrong or whatever <laughs> are now accessible to, to grandma, right? Right. And so, but, but that only becomes possible if the streets are safe enough for people to get there on a bike, right? So yes. I think in terms of encouraging people to, if you encourage people to do that, there's lots of benefits, right? Drives its own type of tourism, you know, makes people healthier, makes people happy, et cetera, and requires less parking. But that, that's only going to happen if you, you know, create routes that, that make people feel safe using that technology. 
Well, Henry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The book is called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. And if you are not a parking geek and don't feel like diving into policy about parking, it is really, it's about housing. It's about architecture. It's about how our cities are shaped and designed. But also, if you're one of our Chicago-based listeners, you might want to read the chapter on the Chicago parking meter. I'll call it a scandal, <laughs> the, the sale of the parking meters, because you'll just want to throw the book through a window. It's infuriating as a former Chicago resident myself, but definitely worth checking out for far more than parking. And Henry, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast and talking to me this morning. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. This podcast is produced by Miles Danhausen Jr. and edited by Rachel Lucas. If you want to help us continue to create more great episodes just like this one, visit our website at doorcountypulse.com.